Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, hey, it is, it is always such a gift to be able to be here and, uh, and be together. As I think we'll see today, there is such a joy in being able to worship together and build each other up in faith. Um, and so if you are new, um, we have been going through this book of Ephesians, this letter of Ephesians. We are now on the sixth chapter, about to end. My name is Stevie, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we're just so glad that you came. Um, and the reason for the question of the day is because it's going to kind of tie into the message, not about bears, uh, but about standing, standing and fighting. And so we are in Ephesians 6. Paul has been doing this beautiful work, talking about the theology, talking about all of these things that Christ has now done, bringing unity in all things under him. And then he finally gets to this section, and we're calling this sermon Stand. And so with that, I think it's fitting. Would you guys mind standing with me as we read this text? Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that uh, whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. You guys can have a seat. Well, while serving as the Secretary General of the United Nations from 1961 to 1971, Burmese diplomat Yu Thant expressed his bewilderment over the state of the human existence on this planet. Speaking to about 2,500 people who gathered to talk about the conditions necessary for world peace, Uthant asked a number of searching questions. Here are some of them. What element is lacking so that without of all of our skill and all of our knowledge, we still find ourselves in the dark valley of discord and enmity? What is it that inhibits us from going forward together to enjoy the fruits of human endeavor and to reap the harvest of human experience? Why is it that for all of our professed ideals, our hopes, and our skills, peace on earth is still a distant objective, seen only dimly through the storms and turmoils of our present difficulties. I don't think that I've ever seen a beauty pageant in person. Anybody else? So weird transition, I promise. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make sense. 
uh, and at risk of very, very harsh judgment, do you guys remember in 2000 when Miss Congeniality came out? Yes? Okay. No one's judging me yet? All right. It's just one of my favorite Sandra Bullock movies. Um, but really any movie that's a spoof on beauty pageants, at the very end of the beauty pageant, they always ask the same question. And they're like, what do you want? What's like the biggest thing that you want? And what do they answer? World peace. World peace. See, Paul just spent basically six chapters, and he was unraveling in various ways what God is up to in the world. It's the collision of heaven and earth. He, he says it's unity in all things under Christ. He has flipped the way of the world on its head. Powers and kingdom, the way that they've been abused and used throughout history, are now under his feet. God's kingdom does not work the way that culture wants it to play anymore. So he lays this out. He says spiritual gifts. They're used for strengthening and building up, not for position and pride. Your marriage, it is not about power dynamics. It's about submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. Parents and children honoring one another and doing that with intention. Slaves and masters, if you missed that, uh, listen to Benji's sermon on it. We all answer to God. He is our master and he is neutral. He does not play favorites. And so we must treat each other with dignity and respect because we're all made in the image of God. What Paul is saying is God is after a whole new humanity, an entire way of operating and relating to one another. He is making all things new. So to answer like I am Mr. America, he's bringing world peace. But Thant poignantly notes God's way has to be different than the world's way. See, for all of our technological advances, all of our scientific discoveries, for all of our in-depth study on neural biology and our growth in psychological findings, the promise of utopia, which is typical of the Western hyper-individualistic cultures like ours, which is an upgraded version of rags to riches or the American dream, peace, or as the Bible puts it, shalom, all things as it should be, in its right place. Peace. Peace seems not just distant, but like it's fading off into the distance, like a ship that's headed off on the horizon. You think intrigues a question I think we all need to ask. And this is what Paul is about to divulge uh, the next 10 verses doing. He's saying essentially, we might be fighting a battle at the surface, but there is a war in the deep, meaning there is more than the eyes can see, waging war against all things that are good, all things that are beautiful, all things united, all things love, all things God. He pulls back the curtain to say there is a very real, very influential piece of the puzzle of our existence in the struggle that we all feel. And so in verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I might have just lost some of you. The devil? Really? Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, why did my friend invite me <laughs> to this place? And if that's you, honestly, I get it. No shame. Uh, to be honest, um, as much as you might think I really want to preach on the devil, I don't. Um, it's not the one that I would have chosen, but it's faithful to the text. And as I've prayed about it, I've actually gotten really excited. I feel like God has shown me a lot through this text. But you might be here and you're like, I don't know, man, we're just about to get weird. I promise you, we're not about to get weird. 
But you could also be here and you're like, I'm an intellectual. I'm just kind of maybe catching up with the Jesus stuff. I can maybe get on board with him. He's cool. He talks about love. I like that. But we as a society, we've moved past fairy tales. I mean, save that stuff for Hollywood, right? Can I just invite you to maybe suspend your judgments for a little bit? See, C.S. Lewis calls this phenomena that we're in chronological snobbery, meaning that because we are further in the future than our grandparents in the past, we therefore know more, and they are inherently weaker and none the wiser we know better. This kind of comes off the coattails of something called the Flynn effect, which uh, James Flynn was a psychologist in New Zealand where he said the IQ tests are rising at a growth rate of three points per decade starting in the 1950s. Now this has proven to be untrue. Uh, Flynn himself said that it's not true. If this were actually the case, we would be outsmarting AI at this point, so it's very much not true. Um, The reality is, is that our grandparents, yes, for sure, we don't believe in trolls and maybe some of the things that they used to believe in. However, they thought differently, more concretely, not as abstractly. And so just because they thought differently doesn't mean that we are wiser. And so what we do is we typically look at things like angel and demons and Jesus even with contempt. And so I want to invite you just to take a posture of openness that our culture prides itself in because you cannot read the Bible without the reality of the spiritual realm. Paul and Jesus all discuss this reality. In most of human history, as well as wise sages outside of Christianity, and even still to this day, most of the world would not have a problem with this conversation. We feel like we know better, but maybe we should pay attention. Maybe Jesus knows something more about reality than we do. And so Paul says, finally, verse 10, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Finally. There are two times in this sermon, this is the first time, when I had to put my sermon down as I was working in my garage and go for a long walk because I was just pondering. This was something that actually kind of stumped me. Why, after all that Paul said, the last five chapters and then some, why, after he talks about this cosmic kind of uniting of all things under Christ, he talks about marriages, he talks about slaves and masters, he talks about children, why, to conclude everything, does he go here? Why is this the finally? I think this is what I've prayerfully been able to come come up with. I think it's because we as humans like strategies. We like formulaic approaches to things. We like to crack the code and plug in the numbers, and we like to then just move on. And we do this in all of our life. But inevitably, when life does not work as we had hoped, dreamed, expected, or really worked hard for, we crumble. We don't understand why did it not work, and so we spiral into anxiety and panic and oftentimes even depression. I was uh, on a vacation a couple weeks ago. Trisha and I were in Portland, and so went to Powell's bookstore, as you do. And we were looking for the Christian book section because I wanted to go find like some old C.S. Lewis book or something. And I was walking, and you walk past the self-help section, and it is massive. And they're all tips and tricks about how you can be, become, and do your best optimal performance in all functions of your life, right? Your relationships, your work, success and money, cognitive growth, inner peace. And I think, tragically, we do the same thing with Christianity. We try to plug in formulas, right? If we plug in the right Christian formulas, life should be blessed. And there's some truth to this, right? Following the way of Jesus, his teachings and his lifestyle, Jesus himself promised that we will have 
life. And he's not just talking about a quantity of life, which is heaven for eternity. He's talking about a quality of life. But guys, people are messy. Relationships are hard. Sickness is rampant. Natural disasters run its course. In Jesus, we can walk through trials differently than everyone else in the world, but Christianity is not another self-help formula. It's a relationship with the very one who is making all things new. And our great hope is that one day Jesus is making all things right and new and that future reality splashes into the present at times. God gives us wisdom. He fills us with peace that the Bible says surpasses understanding. We are filled with joy. We are filled with unexplainable love and resilience. But Christianity, why we gather on Sundays, why you stuff into this tiny chapel, why you go to open tables and we meet around tables, it's not simply to make your life better. That might be a fruit, but it is not the root. We gather to live proximate to Jesus relationally and intimately, as we draw near to him, he is life. He is joy. He is peace. It is in relationship to him that we experience those things, but it's not about tidying up our life. And so I think what Paul is trying to get at is the reason why your life may not be working the way you want to as you plug in all the formulas is because there is not just a very personal God, but there are very personal beings who are working towards your demise. The formula will not work. And so he ends with finally. Now, some, can, uh, some commentators say that finally can be translated in conclusion, but also henceforth or from now on, meaning what he's saying is from now on, from this point forward, you need to know that this war, this struggle, this tension, this battle, you will be in for the rest of your lives. And if you don't know that, you will be disillusioned by the failing formulas, and you might even walk away from your faith. John Stott, a commentator on this passage, helps us feel the impact. He says, But now Paul brings us down to earth and to realities harsher than dreams. He reminds us of the opposition. <clears throat> Beneath surface appearances, an unseen spiritual battle is raging. He introduces us to the devil and to certain principalities and powers at his command. He supplies us with no biography of the devil and no account of the origin of the forces of darkness. He just assumes their existence as common ground between himself and his readers. In any case, his purpose is not to satisfy our curiosity, but to warn us of their hostility and to teach us how to overcome them. Is God's plan to create a new society? Then they will do their utmost to destroy has God, through Jesus, broken down the walls dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil, through his emissaries, will strive to rebuild them. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them seeds of discord and sin. It is with these powers that we are told to wage war or to be more precise, to wrestle. There is a war. So this sermon can be told in three chapters. The three chapters of this sermon will be one, the war, chapter two, the way, and chapter three, the weapons. So let's get into it. Chapter one, the war. Sun Tzu in his book, Art of War. Did anyone ever read that? I had a friend and that was like his potty book. You guys know you have potty books? You got, that's the one that just sits on top of your toilet. And so I would always go in there and I'm like, I wonder what that book is. Now that I flip through it every once in a while, it's really fascinating. This is one of the um, parables from Art of War. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. 
If you know yourself and not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer defeat. If you know neither the enemy or yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Paul wants us to understand that there is a war, and this is what makes sense of much of the struggle that we feel. One, on a global level, how do you make sense of a holocaust? How do you make sense of much of the racism that we see around? How do you make sense of natural disasters and global things that we see, wars that are breaking out? So this makes sense of the struggle we feel globally, but it also makes sense of internal struggles that we feel. I mean, how often do you want to do good? You want to be a certain type of person. You want to be a person of integrity and truthfulness and faithfulness, but you choose again and again destructive patterns and addictions and decisions that don't lead to the life that you truly want. We feel the struggle. So what we know is that Paul believes in the spiritual realm. He believes in the devil. And I think what I want to do is I want to move to Jesus. Has Jesus taught us anything or showed us anything about the devil and his tactics as we talk about this war? That's a leading question. The answer is yes. Luke 4 and Matthew 4, Jesus goes off into the wilderness and he combats the devil, but he combats the devil with truth from scripture. He is calm, he is non-anxious, and he combats the enemy with truth. But I want to get to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 verse 42. Now the context is Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the Pharisees come up to him and say, dude, you're crazy. And he says, no, you're crazy. You are your father's children. And they're like, our father is God. And then Jesus burns them with this, and I love it. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. And if I have not come, uh, I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now, just a side note, um, as excited as I was to be able to do a deep dive study on the devil and preach that to you, um, one of the books that I came across that was honestly just the most helpful, um, and this is just kind of my summation of much of his work, is John Mark Comer, Live No Lies. I cannot recommend that book enough. Uh, it's pastoral, it's theological, it is approachable. And so if you want to dive more into this, I would highly recommend. But this is a bit of my summation from some of his stuff. If you look at this passage, Jesus, as he's interacting with the Pharisees, he says, your father is the devil. So for Jesus, point number one, there's a devil. He just assumes it. That's something that is a reality in which he just says it is. And so Jesus says there's a devil. Now that word is diabolos, which means to slander or to accuse. Scripture also calls him the Satan, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver. All of these are titles. They're not actually a name. Most commentators, as they look at this fact that, the, that Jesus doesn't actually give the devil a name, but just titles, is actually a subtle dig at the devil. He doesn't even get dignity to get a name. And so for Jesus, what he's saying is the devil is real. He is cunning, and he's actually the most influential creature on earth. In the other biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, three times Jesus calls the devil the prince of the world. 
Now that word prince is the word archon in Greek, which is this political word for the highest ranking official in that city or region. And he says he's the prince of the world. Jesus is saying he is the most influential creature in the world. And so as we look at the Bible, which is kind of like a photo mosaic that has photos and poems and prophecies and stories and histories and wisdom sayings and letters, when you put them all together, they make this composite image. And if we apply that to the devil and we look throughout all of scripture, here's a few things we know about him. One is he was created by God. That's actually really important because uh, I don't know about you, but for a long time I was like, man, this is a battle that I don't know if God's going to win. No, God's going to win the battle. The devil is not God's equal and opposite. He is a created being who has a beginning and an end. The devil also was given an original role, which seems to bend the spiritual formation of human beings through testing. Now, think testing as like what a teacher will do to students, to test where they're at, their level, to maybe bring them deeper into education or maturity. But what we gather from the book of Job, if you've read it, the devil takes his design and his role and his skill set not to test but to tempt, and he begins to take humans into spiritual deformation. He chose to rebel against God. He chose to seize the world's throne for himself and to enlist as many creatures as he can. We see this take place in Genesis 3 as he co-opts humanity and he tries to take them into deformation or does take us into deformation. He seeks to redefine good and evil as he sees fit and he is the animating energy behind many of the great atrocities in human history. But what we also know is that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus said, I came to bind the strong man in his own language and set humanity free. We see a few ways that Jesus did this. One is in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 as he beats the devil in the desert, doing what Adam and Eve failed to do in the Garden of Eden. But then through Jesus' teaching and his exorcisms, he is showing authority over devils. And finally, through his death, resurrection, and exaltation, in which, Colossians 2, he disarmed the powers and authorities He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus' victory over the devil was decisive. Most people actually just liken it to D-Day and V-Day. You have June 6, 1944, when the World War II was decisively done, but there were still many miles to Berlin. And so even though there was the victory, it wasn't declared and it wasn't felt for quite some time. And so in the meantime, the devil has been dealt a decisive blow, but like a wounded animal, he is actually more dangerous than ever. If Jesus' saying is on earth as it is in heaven, the devil's saying would be on earth as it is in hell. And so for Jesus, there is a devil. Number two, for Jesus, the devil's end goal is to spread death. He says that he was a murderer from the beginning. John 10.10, Jesus says that the thief, meaning the devil, the Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that you may have life and have it to the full. So the devil, wherever he sees life, he wants to stomp it out. Wherever he sees beauty, he wants to deface it. Wherever he sees love, he wants to corrupt it. Wherever he sees unity, he wants to fragment it into a million pieces. If that's the devil, Jesus is actually the advocate for life itself. He is all things beautiful and true, especially love. God is love, and so the devil is in rebellion against love, one relationship, one community, one nation, 
one generation at a time. This is why we look at the news and see carnage. This is, honestly, as I look at the secular theories of evil, they just don't add up to explain human behavior. There seems to be something more that feels like a war, and Jesus says, yes. And in this war, as much as I wish that there could be, there is no neutral ground. As much as I say, well, it doesn't, it's not for me, I'm just going to back my way out. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, is, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. There is no neutral ground. We are caught in the crossfire of a war. For number three, Jesus says that the devil's means, his method, the way that he does what he does is lies. Meaning this everyday war that Paul is trying to talk about. This one that he says, this strong finally at the end of his sermon. This everyday war is a war that the devil does to try to seed in doubt and division and distrust and power dynamics and hatred. And this is probably not what you think about when you think of spiritual warfare. Many of us think of stuff like paranormal activity or a little like red guy on your shoulders. This is not typically what we think about. But this is how he works. Deception. Deception is his native language. Here's one thing I want to say as a caveat, is that there are two different camps we can fall into. And honestly, sometimes we can fall into the camp where then everything is spiritual warfare. Guys, I came in this morning and I was wearing a white shirt and I spilled coffee all over it. And I had to drive all the way home. I was about to preach and I had to go get a black shirt. And this is the day that I'm preaching on spiritual warfare. I mean, coincidence? Come on. Satan was all over that, right? Or I'm just a dingus and I just like had my lid turned the wrong way. Or maybe you couldn't find a parking spot as you were coming to church today. Is that the devil, right? Or you got in a fight with your spouse on the way over here. Did the devil cause that fight to happen? Or the stock market is crashing and your 401k is not producing. Is the devil behind that? Maybe. It could just be bad luck. It could just be your own decisions, like pouring coffee all over your white shirt. See, the thing is, is that if we blame the devil for every silly thing, it makes sense why we just write him off entirely. C.S. Lewis in his satire, The Screwtape's Letter, Screwtape Letters, which is a fictional book of dialogues between two demons, says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. So the fight, most spiritual warfare that we actually engage with on a day-to-day -day basis, that Paul is warning us to take our stand, is a fight to believe and live into truth. A fight against lies. Now, why is that? What do lies do? Well, everything that you do, every decision that you make, every action that you take, every thought that you have, every relationship that you're in, where you choose to live, the career path you choose to go on is all built off of ideas and built off of belief structures, right? We use sarcasm instead of being honest because we believe that if we were truly known by others, they would pull away in relationship or they would hurt us. We consume and we hoard because we believe that if we don't, then we're not valuable enough or good enough or we won't have enough. 
we numb out or we scroll on Instagram comparing ourselves to others' lives because we believe that if we had what they had, our life would be better, we would be happier. And the list goes on. See, the third chapter of the Bible shows us exactly how the devil works. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent, the devil comes up to them and then he seeds doubt and he says, did God really say? In that moment, conceiving an idea, telling a half-truth that would lead to distrust in God himself and the world has not been the same ever since. And can I say, we are reliving that narrative day in and day out. The devil wants us to distrust God. The devil wants us to to not trust that he exists or that he's good or that he's for us or that his way is actually best. This is the war that we're in. It's real. It is against God. We're caught in the crossfires. So the question is, is there a way? How do we fight? How do we live in the tension of this war? Which leads me to chapter two of this message. Chapter two, the way. E. Stanley Jones noted, I don't work to the victory. I work from the victory to the victory. Meaning we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus is victorious. We know that he is bringing all things into unity. He has has dealt that decisive blow and there is a win against all that is evil. This actually sets the whole tone and posture of our struggle. If we know the final outcome, we live differently. And so what Paul simply tells us to do, four times this verb is used in this 10 verses, and that verb is stand. Four times he says, stand. Stand in the victory. Stand in the reality of the war that is won. The implication is that Jesus has already won. The ground is taken. You just need to plant your feet. Stand firm. So how do we stand? Well, verse 10, he says, be strengthened in the Lord, which I really appreciate because he's not telling me to pull my bootstraps up. He's not telling me to use my own strength. If you're anything like me and you've tried to break a habit, you've tried to break an addiction, you've tried to overcome a sin and you've just done it by your own willpower and you failed again and again, not only do you feel discouraged by your failure, you feel an immense amount of shame. What I love is that what Jesus is saying is that we can be strengthened by him. It's not our own strength and that is good news but how do we do this? And he says, put on the full armor of God. And he goes through the full armor. It's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet with the the gospel shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, praying in the spirit. Where does Paul get this imagery from? Well, if you remember from the very beginning of Ephesians, Paul is writing this letter and he is in prison meaning he's surrounded by Roman guards. And so he would see them put their armor on every day. So he's taking this imagery straight from the Roman guards and how they would put their armor on. But notice he calls this the armor of God, not the armor of Rome. So what is Paul getting at? He's actually reaching back a few hundred years into Isaiah, an Old Testament prophecy that is talking about God wearing armor. Isaiah 11 He says, righteousness will be a belt around his hips, meaning God's hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Isaiah 59, he put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. What Paul is saying is the very armor that God himself is equipped with, that God wears, that is given to you. We just put God on. And he says, put on the full armor. Emphasis word is full. 
meaning we don't pick and choose. Every piece is needed. So let's go through them one by one. And I, I promise I'll go through them a little bit faster. He says, the belt of truth. Now, Roman soldiers in Paul's day, they wore skirts, much like Scottish kilts. And they would pull those skirts up so that they could run in battle. And the belt is what would hold it together as well as hold everything else together. It was the first thing that they put on. And I think it makes sense that Paul would start off with the belt, which is truth, because the enemy's tactic is lies. Paul's saying that the way that we stand is that we let Jesus shape our mind, shape our thoughts, shape our mental maps of reality, shape our vision of life. We stand by seeing the world from his perspective, which is true. We stand by having truth grab us at the very level of our, every level of our being. We stand by living truthful lives, sincere lives, and lives marked with integrity. We stand firm by committing ourselves to not only know the truth, but to speak the truth and live the truth. And then he goes into breastplate of righteousness, which is what the soldiers would wear on their chest, and it would cover their most vital organs. We stand protected when we as individuals and as a community put on righteousness. Now, we don't use righteousness uh, in our everyday language unless you're a surfer and you're like, righteous, which I don't even think surfers do that anymore, right? So what does he mean by righteousness? What he means is that we have been made right with God through Jesus. There was division in our relationship. Jesus comes in and he has made us right. He has reconciled. He has brought us together into right relationship. That's righteousness. It's something given to us. And then he calls us to now live as righteous people. Now, righteousness lived out is called justice. It's the same word in the Greek, meaning that when you live rightly, you see people rightly, you naturally bring them into right relationship, which is the work of justice. Now, I think that this is beautiful because the first thing about righteousness is that we can now tell the devil whenever he accuses us, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8. Because the enemy loves to point out your sin to you, the sin that you did last night the sin that you did last year. He likes to remind you of all of your shortcomings. He likes to accuse your conscience. He likes to tell you that you're not good enough and that you actually don't love God enough and you should just go off into that lifestyle because you're never gonna figure it out. And he's gonna rack you with shame. Or he's going to make you feel so bad that you're gonna work so hard to try to be holier and holier and you're gonna try to justify yourself before God. Both are lies directed at your heart. But the other thing, I, what I love about the justice piece is what guards our heart, what keeps our heart soft from being calloused, what keeps our heart beating at the pace of Jesus, which keeps our heart sensitive to the move of the Holy Spirit is by looking at others and treating them with dignity and respect and justice. You guys ever feel numb? You guys ever feel exhausted and burnt out and weary and dry? I think sometimes we wait for our emotions to lead us to begin to do things. And I think that this is kind of highlighting that sometimes maybe we just need to step into loving others, even if we don't feel like it, and your heart might catch up. The thing that's going to protect your heart and your vital organs and keep you alive in Christ is by doing the work of justice, loving others. And this is what I think is so beautiful. Jesus was talking to his disciples, and as he was talking to them, he says, you guys fed me. 
You gave me a cup of water. You gave me clothes on my back. You gave me a place to rest my head. And all of his disciples were like, Rabbi, when did we do that? And Jesus says, well, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Meaning Jesus so identifies with the broken. He so identifies with the people that are lost and on the margins. He identifies with the people who are hurt and people in our society, we would just walk right by. He identifies with them so much that when we love them, we are loving Jesus. And so as we love others, as Jesus loved others, our heart will be protected. And I think that's beautiful. So righteousness and justice. The next is gospel shoes. Gospel shoes. Roman soldiers would put these shoes on so they can go over rough terrains. And and essentially what he's saying is if the whole point is to stand, the way that we stand, the way that we're planted and are firm in everything that we do, it's the gospel. And it's not just the fact that Jesus died for you, for your salvation, so you can go to heaven one day. That's a piece of it. But the gospel is that Jesus died to renew all things, to restore all things, to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and you're a part of it. So when we stand, essentially what we're declaring is you're done, Satan. Jesus has won and his kingdom is coming. That is how we stand planted in the gospel of the kingdom. The next is the shield of faith. We all know what shields look like. Um, Roman shields were a little bit skinnier, and they had a little bit of a curve on one side. Now, the point of that was not that you would necessarily be able to guard the arrows on your own, but it was meant for you to be shoulder to shoulder with other people. And as the Romans would get shoulder to shoulder with each other, putting their shields, they would then create a barrier that interlocked And that was how they were able to shield. So faith, the shield of faith, was always meant to be a communal thing. Always meant to be about community. And I love this because this is so beautiful. I need your faith. Your faith helps me. Your faith guards me. And hopefully my faith helps you too. And I think we experience this, right? When you're around other followers of Jesus, when you read the Bible together, when you walk through difficult situations and you know that your church is praying for you, maybe you experienced that this evening as we were singing worship and we're lifting our hands, you felt your faith arise. See, faith is not simply individual, it is always communal. Our faith can build each other up. And then it says that those shields can block flaming arrows. Now, this is the second time that I had to put my sermon down and go for a walk. And I don't know if it's that profound, but it was profound for me because um, just this question started to come up to me. I was like, why, why, why couldn't they just be darts? Like, why, why did Paul have to say they're flaming arrows? Like, why do you have to add pyrotechnics to the whole thing? Just for like, you know, more spectacle. I don't know what he was going for, but... But as I was walking and praying about it, I I began thinking about the enemy's tactic of lies. And I started to realize that fire is just, it's spreadable. Why would you shoot a flaming arrow unless you're trying to burn everything around it, right? It doesn't just destroy the immediate location of impact, but it burns all of it, right? Like a virus or a cancer, it infuses and corrupts and seeps into all things. I mean, you can do a small study on attachment theory or on family systems, or you can go to therapy yourself for a little bit, and you realize that there was a pain point. There was a missed affection from a parent. There was a searing comment that happened when you were seven years old, and that now is the motivator behind how you're relating to your spouse in conflict, or to your boss when you're under pressure, or to your roommate. 
It's why you have coldness towards certain personality types or you're attracted to other personality types that you know are toxic and codependent. It's why we find ourselves in addictive behaviors because those darts are fiery. Those lies didn't just stay where the pain entered. They spread and they're wreaking havoc on all of our lives. Every one of us have been hit by fiery darts. But what I love what Paul is saying is faith in community can extinguish fiery arrows. Psychologists and interpersonal neurobiologists are finding this to be true. We need others to heal. We need others. See, the reality is, is if someone, if a person is the one that hurt you, it's actually with people that you find healing. We need each other. Isn't that beautiful that in this space, I mean, this is, this is one of the things that, like, as I was doing this, I was like, dang, God, that's, like, really sparking a, a renewed passion in me, a renewed passion as to why we do what we do. We don't just show up here to, to hear a, too long of a sermon and to get cooked in this really, like, small chapel when we're sweating and it's, there's, like, air conditioning could not be working any better, right? Right? We don't do that. We do that because we come here to build each other's faith up, to heal the, the flaming arrows as they spread throughout our lives. We come here to be able to be shoulder to shoulder and live life with each other as we pursue Jesus and put the armor on together. We come here because God is worth it. He is the healer, and we, in community, heal each other as we walk it out. That is beautiful. And I, I'll say this is profound. I, I could do this for the rest of my life. The fifth defensive piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. Now, I just think this is beautiful. The thing that protects your mind, the thing that guards your head from the lies infusing is to reminder of your salvation. You stand firm by declaring, in Jesus I'm saved. I'm forgiven by God through grace. I'm reconciled to God by grace. I'm adopted by God by grace. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit by grace. I am in Jesus and I'm being saved. The Spirit is working in me, transforming me into the image of Jesus. The Spirit is cleansing me and the Spirit is using all things to mold me into a new creation. I hope that what you've seen in all of these pieces of the armor is every single piece is Jesus. The belt of truth, Jesus is the truth. The breastplate of righteousness, Jesus is righteousness. The shoes of peace, Jesus, the prince of peace. The shield of faith, faith in Jesus and the faith of Jesus. The helm of salvation, salvation because of Jesus. We simply just put on Jesus. Our goal here at Light is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus and do the stuff that Jesus did. That's what it's about. So the way of the war, or the way that we, we go against this war of lies is to stand. We stand in the truth of Jesus. And now notice all of these pieces of armor are defensive. There is no armor for your back because you're not meant to attack. You're meant to stand, but you're also not meant to retreat. They are protecting us so that we can remain rooted, stand in the reality of who Jesus is. But there are two offensive pieces. And this is where we get to chapter three, the weapons. The first weapon is the sword of the spirit. Now, this is not a sword of iron. This is not a sword of any human making, but a spiritual sword that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is the word of God. 
Again, if, if the Satan is trying to infuse lies, the way that we fight against intruding lies is to combat those very lies with truth from God. Now, contrary to every man who's ever asked, what are you thinking? And we all say, nothing. Is there really nothing going on inside of our heads? I'm not really sure. But there are times that we have things that actually are going on inside of our heads and we tell ourselves, just don't think about it. When you find yourself and that image comes back into your head, I don't want to think about it. Well, what happens when you tell yourself, don't think about it? You begin to think about it. It does not work. In fact, I can incept an idea into your mind right now. Imagine me wearing a Roman skirt up here. Stop thinking about it. It's weird. See, many of you are thinking about it. Stop it. Others of you actually aren't thinking about it, but how? You decided to think about something else. You filled your mind with other thoughts. That is precisely what Jesus is talking about as we fight against lies. When we have an intrusive thought, when a lie comes into our mind, when deception enters our brains, change the channel of your brain. Fill your mind with truth from God's word rather than ruminating on the lie or trying and failing to not Think about it. So when you're in a moment of temptation where you really want to criticize someone, in a moment when a lustful thought or that image pops into your mind, or when you're reflecting negatively about yourself, thinking about your image or your weight, or in a moment when you're tempted to lie or be greedy, simply, but honestly, not so simply, change the channel. Take the word of the truth. As Paul says, take every thought captive, which is an active choice that we have to make to submit that thought, to change the channel and bring it under Christ. So remind yourself of scripture. Memorize scripture. Remind yourself of the cross. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did. This is why I am redeemed. Remind yourself of God's love. He loves me so much. Even when I was dead in my sin, he pursued me. Remind yourself through gratitude of God's goodness still despite your circumstances. This is our weapon. This is our attack. And then the other thing that he brings up is to pray at all times in the Spirit. Pray at all times. In the Spirit reminds me that prayer is not just our work. It is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit moves us to pray, helps us to pray, teaches us to pray, and empowers us to pray. And did you notice, it says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Notice how often he's saying all. I'm, I, I like to lob a prayer to God and say like, here you go, Lord, answer. But what he's saying is pray because you have the ear of heaven focused towards you. Pray about everything and pray with such intensity as if you know that God is moving on your behalf. Pray not just because it makes you feel good, but because there are powers and principalities that are being moved by your prayers. Pray because it actually shifts things. You might not see it in the physical and in the now, but as you pray, things are changed. Karl Barth famously says to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. That is so good. And I think that this is why the powers so cleverly and constantly keep us off of our knees in prayer. It 
fuels our busyness so that we don't have time to pray. I'm curious as to why maybe uh, we have reasons for, maybe we're just too busy so we can't read the Bible. Or maybe this is a bit confusing and, and I don't really know how to study it, and so I don't know if I want to read it. And honestly, I kind of want to do other things with my time. I get it, but maybe, just maybe, there might be other forces behind the fact that we have a laziness and an apathy and we don't open our scriptures and we don't get on our knees in prayer. And this is not shame. I'm right there with you. The invitation is would we maybe realize that this is a war. And as we speak truth, as we read truth, as we renew our mind, as we speak truth over our mind, when lies come in, as we get on our knees and pray, we are at war, principalities and powers, these very real things that Paul wanted to make sure that we knew are being moved when we do it. So remember, this is all to stand, to stand firm, to stand in the reality of who God is, to remind ourselves of truth. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And as we stand we are leaning into this truth, this reality that God is actually empowering us to be a part of the renewal that is to come. So we're not just redeemed, we're not just saved, we're given purpose. And I think that's beautiful. As a church, we have a purpose. We get to be a community that breathes faith over one another. We get to stand firm together. And so with that, I want to take those two offensive weapons, prayer and truth, and I want to put them together. And so would you guys stand with me as we pray? And I'm going to pray a prayer from the Bible. And I know we don't do this too often, but as I pray this prayer, it's going to be up on the screen. Some of you guys are familiar with it. Would you mind praying it with me as we declare these things out loud? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.